Let me start out by explaining to you that most of you, if you're at all familiar with me standing on a platform, expect me to preach. And it is relatively rare that I find myself in a situation that I enjoy being in very much, where I am not so much called to preach as to teach. Now, I believe that all preaching should incorporate teaching. But it does not necessarily follow that all teaching is preaching. People have often asked me, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? And one of the answers is decibels. <laughs> but that is not the key answer to the question. The, the key difference between teaching and preaching is that teaching is primarily concerned with communicating information. That preaching based on the information that is being communicated, is then making very specific application and is encouraging response. And so the emphasis in the sessions that I will have you on the subject of teaching will, of necessity, <laughs> finish up preaching on occasion because that's who I am. But primarily, I want to communicate information to you trusting that the Spirit of God of whom we speak will apply it to your own hearts and minds. First of all, let me just outline for you the importance of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We fully recognize in the Christian community that we have a God who exists in three persons. This is the great mystery. It is something that we are incapable of rationally grasping or rationally explaining. But we have no alternative if we take Scripture seriously to recognizing the fact that the Bible talks about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we will turn to references underlining that basic truth. I think if we were to summarize the members of the Trinity... The, the key points will be as follows. First of all, we recognize that God the Father is the transcendent one. Transcendent one is, that is, the one who overarches all things. Secondly, the Son, having assumed our humanity and lived amongst us, etc., etc., we're all familiar with the story, after he had completed the work that he came to do, the work of redemption, ascended to the Father and is seated at the Father's right hand. So we have a picture of the Father sitting in glory in a transcendent situation, overseeing the whole of everything that he has created. At his right hand is the risen, glorified Jesus. When Jesus returned to the Father after completing his work of redemption, however, he promptly did what he had promised his disciples he would do. He asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who dwells within the redeemed. So we think now in terms of the Father overruling, overseeing all things. We think of the Son glorified at his right hand, 
and he lives, ever lives, to make intercession for us. And we have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. I remember as a young person listening to an old preacher, I remember thinking how old he was at the time because he told us he was 80 years of age. And now I think in his prime, not an old man at all. <laughs> I remember him telling us that if you study your Bible's young people, you will find that after the Father had created the worlds, he rested. And after the Son had completed his work of redemption, he sat down. Then he said, young people, I defy any of you to find in the scriptures where we read that the Holy Spirit has sat down. For the very simple reason, he hasn't. The work of creation, completed. The work of redemption, completed. The work of the Holy Spirit in progress at this moment. Now that immediately reminds us of the sheer significance and importance of understanding the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity with whom we have to do in our daily lives. Not only that, he is the one who, as we are told, dwells within us. Try to let those words sink in. If, if it is true, we are now not talking about a God seated in the heavenlies. We're not talking about his son seated in glory at his right hand. We are talking about a member of the Trinity who actually resides within the lives of the redeemed down here on earth. That is a mind-boggling concept. It is he of whom we speak. He is the one who is nearest. He is the one who is eminently personal. He is the one who, in all the power of the risen life of Christ, actually is active in our lives. This is the one of whom we speak. It is therefore very odd that in many, many ways, the Holy Spirit is the unknown member of the Trinity. In many, many ways, he is the forgotten member of the Trinity. And yet, on the other hand, given that we now live in a day when subjective experience very, very often is more important in people's thinking than objective truth, it's odd that the one whom subjectively we are to experience and enjoy is the one of whom we tend to know least. And so it is most appropriate that we spend time looking into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Gordon Fee, uh, who one of, one of his books is... Uh, probably the best book I know on the subject of the Holy Spirit. If you want some light reading, here it is. <laughs> God's Empowering Presence by Dr. Gordon F. Fee. A hugely 
significant book. He says, the health of the contemporary church necessitates that its theology of the Spirit and its experience of the Spirit correspond more closely. There are people in the church who are very, very intrigued with a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There are other people who are very excited about an experience of the Holy Spirit. What is relatively rare is people who have a clear-cut doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which they are experientially knowing. On the other hand, it is relatively rare to find people who, in all the excitement of the experience of the Holy Spirit, have not bothered to work out a theology of the Holy Spirit. If they don't do that, of course, there's always the possibility that their experience may have the name of the Holy Spirit on it and yet have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. So what we need is to make certain that our doctrine is orthodox as far as Scripture is concerned, but that we don't settle with that if deep down in our hearts we know that is a lot of theory that is not my experience. I recognize that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is an area in which there has probably been more controversy in recent years than any other aspect of Christian theology. This is unfortunate, for he is, among other things, the spirit of peace. And one aspect of the fruit of the spirit is peace. It's the ultimate irony, then, that he should become the topic of division. I had an experience a number of years ago that was very, very powerful for me. I was, to my surprise, invited by Christianity Today to participate in a one-day round table on the topic of the Holy Spirit in the contemporary church. And they invited six or seven of us to meet for a day and to talk on the topic. It was a fascinating group. It was presided over by Dr. Kenneth Kanzner, who at that time was the Dean of Trinity International University. Dr. J.I. Packer, well-known reformed theologian. Dr. Charles Ryrie from Dallas Theological Seminary, well-known for his cessationist position on the Holy Spirit. Um, John Wimber, or the late John Wimber, who at that time was the founder of the vineyard churches and was particularly powerful in his teaching on what he called power encounters in the Holy Spirit. Dr. Russell Spittler from Fuller Theological Seminary, he was there as a classic Pentecostal and another professor from um, Trinity, and I, I'm embarrassed, I forget his name. I know it was Tim, somebody. And he was well known for his ministry of exorcism of demons. And uh, they were all there to speak on their specialty. And I was there, I think, for light relief. Well, <laughs> it was a fascinating, absolutely fascinating week because it started out by Ken Kanzner getting in touch with us and saying, only two things I want you to prepare. First of all, 
I want you to prepare a well-thought-out but brief statement of your understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in the contemporary church. And secondly, I want you to prepare a statement outlining the weaknesses of your position. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Because we started out with everybody in total agreement on everybody else's weak points. <laughs> and from that point of agreement, we had a very, very productive day. That is the spirit in which I believe we should study the Holy Spirit together. All right. Let me give you a quick overview of the history of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You may think this is not particularly interesting, and of course you may be right, but just get used to it. All right. <laughs> In the very early days of the church, they were obviously very much concerned about basically pulling together the teachings of Jesus, pulling together the teachings of the apostles, pulling together what it meant to be followers of Jesus and what it meant to be the church. They didn't really have all that much information ready-made for them. They certainly didn't have CDs. They didn't have anything being streamed to them. They were actually working with the material available to them. Therefore, it was understandable that what they believed firmly that the Holy Spirit was active in the inspiring of what would become what we call our Bible, the Holy Scriptures, but at that time, of course, were not collated as the Bible. And so in the early days of the church, as far as the Holy Spirit was concerned, there was particular interest in the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit. At the same time, we do have information from a document called the Didache, which comes from the first century, or about 100 years AD, and in that, their specific teaching, which is what Didache means, teaching about how to be a disciple of Jesus. The Holy Spirit figures all the time there, particularly in their understanding of the connection between baptism and the Holy Spirit. And in very early days, they were using the Trinitarian formula for baptism. They were baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The second century, they were beginning to do their theology. They were beginning to try to formulate what exactly they were to understand by gathering all that they had got of Jesus' teaching, all that the apostles had been teaching, and they began to formulate their understanding of who the Holy Spirit was. When we look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, their understanding of it was far, far less developed than the understanding of the Holy Spirit in the very early days of the church. And God was progressively revealing these things to them. But in the very early days, they were talking about the Holy Spirit as God, if you really want to get into historical theology, you can have a wonderful time studying the development of their understanding of the Holy Spirit. In the 4th and 5th centuries, particularly because of the studies and the working and the debating that was going on with people such as Hilary and Augustine and Athanasius, they began to formulate a clear understanding of the Trinity 
and the role of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. In the medieval period, it's very, very interesting to notice that while we call this the Dark Ages, as far as their understanding of the Holy Spirit was concerned, they had a clear grasp devotionally of what it meant to live in relationship with the Holy Spirit. A very famous hymn that comes to us from the medieval period is called Veni Creator Spiritus. Let me read some of it to you. And as I read it to you, listen very carefully for what it says about their understanding of the Holy Spirit in medieval times. I may make some mistakes in reading this as well because some of it is printed in Old English. And I I like Old English because I'm English and... (laughs) You can fill in the blanks there. All right. Here it is. Veni Creator Spiritus. Creator Spirit by whose aid the world's foundation first were laid... Come visit every pious mind. Come pour thy joys on humankind. From sin and sorrow set us free and make thy temples worthy thee. See how much theology is there? O source of uncreated light, the Father's promised paraclete, thrice holy found, thrice holy fire, our hearts with heavenly love inspire. Come, and thy sacred unction bring to sanctify us while we sing. See how much theology they've got in medieval times? Plenteous of grace descend from high, rich in thy sevenfold energy. What do they mean by that? Thou strength of his almighty hand, whose power does heaven and earth command, proceeding spirit our defense, who does the gift of tongues dispense and crowns thy gift with eloquence. Refine and purge our earthly parts, but oh, inflame and fire our hearts. Our frailties help, our vice control, Submit the senses to the soul, and when rebellious they are grown, then lay thy hand and hold them down. Chase from our minds the infernal foe, and peace the fruit of love bestow. And lest our feet should step astray, protect and guide us in the way. Make us eternal truths receive, and practice all that we believe. How about that? Make us eternal truths receive and practice all that we believe. Give us thyself that we may see the Father and the Son through thee. Immortal honor, endless fame, attend the Almighty Father's name. The Savior's Son be glorified who for lost man's redemption died and equal adoration be eternal paraclete. To thee. I think that's beautiful. I think it's magnificent. Don't talk about the Dark Ages, unless perhaps you're referring to the days in which we live. Because, in actual fact, in medieval times, they had some very, very clear insights into the Holy Spirit. However, at the same time, there was a great schism took place in the church, the schism that is still with us today, the schism between the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, the Western Church and the Eastern Church. 
<laughs> what was the argument about? Well, there were a number of points of disagreement. There still are. But there was one fundamental theological point of disagreement, and it was called the filioque. That's another nice word you may not be familiar with. It is a Greek word, and it is all about the Holy Spirit. And the, the traditional view and the creeds of the church up until that time had been that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father, that they decided because of what Arius was saying, we won't get into Arius right now, but because of what Arius was saying, they thought it would be wiser to say that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. The Eastern Christians, they said, no way, that diminishes the Father. And it does not give the Son his rightful place. We will not have it. The Western Church insisted, the Eastern Church insisted, and they tore apart. Rome continued to look to the Bishop of Rome, and the East began to look to the Bishop of Constantinople. That's how we got the Roman Catholic Church as we know it now, and the Orthodox Church as we know it now. It's on the subject of the Holy Spirit. They took their theology seriously if there wasn't much of the grace of the Holy Spirit in evidence at the time. Along came the Reformation. During the time of the Reformation, there were various branches of the Reformation, as you know. Luther in Germany, Calvin in Switzerland. Luther was particularly taken not only with the doctrine of justification by grace, but the idea that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he called it the infusion of love. This infusion of love, this understanding that the Holy Spirit makes God present within us and God is love. He recognized that the loving, gracious power of God indwelling us by the Holy Spirit was totally committed to battling with the flesh of which Luther was very, very cognizant. He spoke very, very openly about his struggles with the flesh in various ways. And so in the Reformation, there was tremendous emphasis on the indwelling Holy Spirit battling the flesh. Read Galatians 5 if you want to know more about that. Calvin, on the other hand, was dealing with a lot of skeptics who at that time were saying, how do we know that the scriptures are authentic? The Roman Catholic Church at that time was saying, and still says, that it is the responsibility of the church to decide what constitutes scripture. Calvin said Whatever other means we may use to believe the authenticity of the canon of Scripture, there's one thing we cannot overlook, and that is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit as we read the Scriptures, that this is indeed the truth of God. And so Calvin's emphasis was quite different from Luther's emphasis at that time, but two very, very important emphases that have come down to us to this day that come out of the Reformation. In the 18th and 19th century, we went into a period because of the, what was known as the Enlightenment of rationalism. Rationalism began to take a scientific, if you like, 
view of the scriptures, what we would now call higher criticism. They began to study the scriptures, but there was no sense of relying on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was shunted off to one side, and the scriptures became ancient documents that were to be put under the scrutiny of rational investigation. This led, of course, to an undermining in the hearts of many people of the authority of Scripture, which is with us to this day. I had an email this morning from somebody who had run into a buzzsaw with some relatives on why we can even take the Bible seriously. It finds its way back to what was going on in the 18th and 19th great theological debates. One of the things that came out of this thinking was what we call deism, where people continued to believe in God, but not to believe in a God who was active in our world. I think in all honesty, we would have to say that many of the founding fathers were deists, rather than people who believed in a God who was actively alive in our world. At the same time this was going on in Europe, a fascinating thing was going on in America, particularly out on the Western frontier. American revivalism. American revivalism had its roots in England in Puritanism. Puritanism was a movement that came out of the Reformation that believed that the Reformers only had half a Reformation. They thought that they had reformed doctrine they hadn't changed lives, and that therefore there was only half a reformation. They went further, and groups formed in some of the traditional churches that were called the Pietists, a group in Germany under Count Zinzendorf called Herrnhut. They had a remarkable spiritual revival. The Wesleys had a remarkable revival in England, the Western frontier in America had a remarkable revival. The Great Awakenings took place, two of them in America, documented by Jonathan Edwards. All of them stressed the fact that unless the Holy Spirit works, there is a dead orthodoxy. And this was what they were battling against. 18th and 19th century saw remarkable schism again in the church between those who went with a higher critical liberal approach to scriptures and those who went the route of a more puritanical in a good sense. The Puritans get a raw deal in many, many ways. Those who went the way of the Puritans, those who went the way of the Pietists, which is where we would find many of our roots. At, at this time. Not only that, in the 20th century, something very, very interesting happened. Some of its roots in this revivalism. And this is what we call the classical Pentecostal movement, where there were people who began to experience, without any warning whatsoever, what appeared to be a work of grace of the Holy Spirit in which they began to experience some of the gifts of the Spirit that to a large extent had lain dormant in the church for many, many years. 
And they became known as the Pentecostals, obviously, because they focused very much on Acts chapter 2, in which we read about the Holy Spirit being poured out and the people speaking in tongues or in languages and without interpretation, people beginning to understand. They claim to have very similar experiences, hence Pentecostalism. This meant the formation of Pentecostal churches, of Pentecostal denominations. But then later on, something very interesting happened called the Neo-Pentecostal movement. That is the new Pentecostal movement. And that was where similar phenomena now began to appear, would you believe it, in Catholic churches and Lutheran churches and Anglican churches. And these people did not form Pentecostal churches and Pentecostal denominations. They stayed in their denominations where they began in various forms to practice what they were experiencing of the Holy Spirit. And out of this has come what we would have to say is a very powerful movement in the church around the world, and that is the charismatic renewal. The simple fact of the matter is this. The church is growing most rapidly in the developing world. And where the church is growing most rapidly in the developing world, almost invariably, there is a strong charismatic influence. So that brings us up to date. A quick overview of what has been happening from the time of the inception of the church until the days in which we live. All right, now then, let's talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit. When I say let's talk about it, I mean let me talk about it. <laughs> you just sit there very, very quietly. All right. The deity of the Holy Spirit. I think it would be true to say, and this is important, it would be true to say that when we turn to the Scriptures, the deity of the Father is assumed. <laughs> I mean, how about this assumption? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the assumption? The assumption is that there is a God and he's perfectly capable of creating the worlds out of nothing. No argument, no explanation, no apology. It's assumed. Along comes Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's a different matter. For when Jesus of Nazareth comes, now the fact that he is God incarnate is a bit hard for some folks to accept. That's putting it mildly, isn't it? And continues to be hard for some people to accept. And so it would be true to say, whilst the deity of the Father has been assumed, the deity of the Son has been argued. And as it has been argued, in many places, it has been affirmed that Jesus is the Son of the living God. What of the Holy Spirit? Can we turn to Scripture and find that the Holy Spirit presence and person and deity is stated in unequivocal terms? No, I don't think so. Can we say it is automatically assumed? No, I don't think so. As we'll see in the Old Testament, it was not assumed in the Old Testament. What can we say? Is it argued? No, I don't know anywhere where you could say that the deity of the Holy Spirit is argued. 
Well, the best we can say is, and there's nothing wrong with this, that the deity of the Spirit is inferred. In other words, it is suggested, it is pointed out, and you have to do your work on whether you are willing to infer from the information given to you that the Holy Spirit is indeed a member of the Trinity. Don't be alarmed at that, because nowhere in Scripture does anybody sit down to give you a carefully reasoned theology of the Holy Spirit. It's not there. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in his historical environment, where he crops up, when he does certain things, what happens when he does them, etc., etc., But nowhere is there a carefully reasoned theology of the Holy Spirit, but it can be inferred. Let me, for instance, point out to you that if we're talking about the deity of the Holy Spirit, we will find the term Holy Spirit used interchangeably with God. Two references, I won't go into them now, but make a note of them. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. But I would like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if you would, please. Ephesians chapter 2. I'll start reading from verse 21. In him, that is in Christ, The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, that is Christ, you too, that is the Ephesian Christians, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. All right? Now, God and spirit couldn't be in much closer proximity than they are there. We're looking into scriptures from which we infer the deity of the Holy Spirit. So what is it saying? It is saying that the Ephesian believers are being built individually and collectively into something that God is creating. And what is it? It is an entirely new entity created out of, a, out of all-time enemies the Jews and the Gentiles, this new entity is now being called the temple in which God lives. God actually is alive in this temple. And what is this temple? This temple is the body of believers and individual members. And the first Corinthian references I gave you, I give you more information on this. Individuals and corporately together, we are the place where God lives by his spirit. Now, let me just remind you, in Exodus chapter 25 and in Exodus chapter 33, we read God promising to dwell with his people in the wilderness. And where does he do that? He does that in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle becomes the dwelling place of God. When the tabernacle is dismantled in order that they might move, A pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night goes ahead of them. And this is the evidence of God being present among his people. Moses even goes so far as to say this. 
God, if your presence is not visibly with us, we ain't going anywhere. We're just not going anywhere without you. And he said, if your presence is not with us, how will we be different from the peoples of the world? Wow, what a statement. If your presence is not with us, how will we be different from the other peoples in the world? What a word for the contemporary church. If there is not evidence of God present within us by his Spirit, how are we different from the rest of the world? You remember later on, King David wanted, well, he, he got a bit embarrassed. He built himself a very nice house, but they'd still got the ratty-tatty old tabernacle from the wilderness flapping away in the wind there. And he thought he, at least he could do was build God a nice place. And so he asked God about it, and God said, no, you have too much blood on your hand, David. Your son Solomon can do it. And so Solomon was given the task of building a dwelling place, again, the same idea, a dwelling place for the Lord. And you remember, he, he, they built this magnificent temple, absolutely magnificent temple. But what did Solomon say? Solomon said, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How can this place possibly contain you? That the visible presence of God came upon that place and the temple became the dwelling place of God. Now, this is what the Apostle Paul does right in the Ephesians. He translates the idea of the tabernacle and the temple as the dwelling places of God to the community of believers. And he says, we are the temple of God in which God lives by his spirit. Think about that. And then ask yourself the question, what possible evidence is there in me of this being a practical reality? And then ask ourselves another question, what possible relevance is there of this statement to the community of faith with which I associate. If your presence is not with us, why are we different from the other people around us? The Holy Spirit is used interchangeably with God on occasion. There's one example, only one example. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit possesses divine attributes. He possesses divine attributes. Omniscience. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We, we will just look at this one. We won't, we won't look at, at the others as far as omniscience is concerned. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Well, I need to read verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. Now here it is. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now what are we looking at here? We're looking at the idea of the Holy Spirit possessing divine attributes. What is the 
one of the incommunicable attributes of God. I love that word, incommunicable. It means attributes of God that cannot be transferred. Only he has them, all right? What does it say here? It says that the Holy Spirit alone can search the inner recesses of the mind and purposes of God and understand them. If that's what he does, he's omniscient. And omniscience is a characteristic of God. John chapter 16, verse 13, the Lord Jesus, speaking of the coming Holy Spirit, promises this. He says that the Holy Spirit will lead the disciples into all truth. How could he do that without knowing it? How could he know all truth without being omniscient? You see what I mean by inferring these things? But they're very, very clear as you put them all together. Omnipotence. Omnipotence, another of the divine attributes. If omniscience means knowing all things, omnipotence means being all-powerful. All-powerful. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. You remember the announcement of the coming of the Savior by the angel. And over and over again, the, the angel announces that it will be through the work of the power of the highest coming upon it, or the power of the most high. Now, the, the term highest or most high is another of those terms that the Jewish people like to use, as I've mentioned to you, about talking about the kingdom of heaven, meaning the kingdom of God. Do you remember why they did that? Because they were so afraid of contravening the commandment about taking the name of the Lord their God in vain, they wouldn't use his name at all. Remember? That's why they talk about the most high or the highest one. It is a name for God. But what does the angel say? It says that the power of the most high, the all-powerful one, will overcome you. And then by way of explanation, he says, that which is born in you will be born how? Of the Holy Spirit. Of the Holy Spirit. So what do we infer from this? We infer that the power of the all-powerful one, the unnamed God at that particular point, is to be mediated through the Holy Spirit. There are lots of other things. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 through 26, it talks about where Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> the disciples get a bit alarmed about this because they thought if you were wealthy in those days, that was a sign of divine approval. So you must be a really good guy. Jesus says, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. There are a lot of rich crooks around. It's easier, he said, in fact, it would be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And so understandably, they say, how, can you, how could this happen? How could this happen? How are you going to get, get a camel through the eye of a needle? How are you going to get a rich man into heaven? And Jesus says, oh, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And how do rich men get into the kingdom? It is through the convicting 
and the enlightening and the converting and transforming power of the Holy Spirit. What are we inferring here? We are inferring that the Holy Spirit possessing divine attributes is therefore by definition of divine nature. His eternality, he is described quite specifically in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 as the eternal spirit. The eternal spirit. Hebrews chapter 1, by way of contrast, says this. In the beginning, verse 10, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. That describes God. But later on in the same epistle, the Holy Spirit is described as the eternal Spirit. So what do we infer from this? We infer that the Spirit has the attributes of God. That is one way in which we come to a conclusion concerning the deity of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just identify for you. You can look at the work of God in creation. Genesis chapter 1 particularly. That's one passage that we don't need to turn to. You're familiar with it. It's talking about in the initial form of creation, and none of us was there, so we don't know how it happened, so we don't get into an argument about it. Nobody was there. We simply go with the, what the scriptures say, and we look at what science, good science, is telling us, and there's no reason for any conflict there. And as we look at what it says, it says that there was a sense of primeval chaos and darkness, a sense of dark chaos in the world. But God is present there in his spirit. And the spirit is hovering over this dark chaos, as it were, like an eagle. The only other place that the word is used in scripture of the hovering is of the eagle watching its chicks take their first flight out of the nest. <laughs> up, up on that high crag, hundreds of feet up, and they've been sitting there perfectly secure. Now Mama Eagle says, time to go, kids, and kicks them out of the nest, and they start fluttering. But she hovers over them, just keeping an eye on, presiding over the whole set of circumstances. So it is with the primeval darkness and chaos. God in his mighty power is hovering there until it's time to bring order out of chaos, which is what he's been doing ever since. Bringing cosmos, order and beauty out of chaos. Who is hovering there? Well, it is the spirit of God. It is the spirit of God. When we look at the work of God in transformation, what do we see? We see that God is active in the work of transformation as is the Holy Spirit. Let me just read to you Titus 
fascinating statement here. Titus 3, verse 4. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us, that is God, through the washing of rebirth and renewal. How? By the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal salvation. All right? How does God transform people? Well, God does it, but how does he do it? Through the work of Jesus. But how is the work of Jesus mediated to us? By the Holy Spirit. So what do we infer? We infer that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are involved in the work that only God can do. And if that is the case, what do we infer? We infer that the Holy Spirit has divine attributes demonstrated in the way that he works in the work of transformation. And finally, in the work of inspiration. The work of inspiration. A scripture that we're all familiar with, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, etc. Great statement on the inspiration of Scripture. For our purposes now, notice the word that is translated God-breathed. It's one of those nice Greek words with different pieces added on, like a piece of a jigsaw puzzle. Theo Neustos. Theo, God. Neustos from pneuma, for spirit, or breath or wind. Same word, pneuma, same word in the Old Testament, ruach, meaning wind or breath or spirit. What is it saying here? God breathed by his spirit in moving men into writing the scriptures. More specifically, he talks about this in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. I said, finally, I was wrong. This is the final, finally. The Holy Spirit's equality with the Father and the Son is well attested. And I will conclude this section with the well-known benediction with which we end so many of our services. But now look at it from the point of the Holy Spirit's equality with the Father and the Son. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.